Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 37 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 14th of October. And Leon, we're talking to Daniel Isaac of the Coffee Emporium this week. That's right, uh, the Coffee Emporium chain. Uh, He's the general manager and he talks about the changes that he introduced to the business and he talks about the strengths of it and the franchise model. And of course, coffee is a big, big deal in Australia, particularly in Melbourne. That's right. It's a whole culture. And then after that, we've got The Economist. That's right. We're talking to Sinclair Davidson all about whether government's claims that it's reigning in spending and uh, Sinclair takes another view. Well, Sinclair's line is, let's take a look at the numbers. Anyway, let's talk about coffee with Daniel Isaacs. Daniel, tell us all about Coffee Emporium. Coffee Emporium is a brand, as you probably know from the logo, it initially established in 1991. It was run by um, a Yugoslavian family and it was uh, operated in Bankstown and it operated from 1991 to 2002 where franchise or John A.U. purchased this coffee house and it was a rundown, very humble um, uh, coffee house that wasn't uh, really doing any well. John came in with his strong background in coffee, turned the sales around and um, and really focus on the two key controllables in the business to ensure there's a, a good level of profitability. Um, in uh, That was in uh, 2002. 2005, he joined partnership with Sam Ayub. Sam Ayub's his cousin. And, uh, and wow, they, they're a fantastic combination. John's the flamboyant um, entrepreneur. Sam's very fidelious with uh, numbers, very financially orientated, quite a smart um, and astute businessman. And they, they, they were the right balance. So, um, and they joined forces. In 2006, the Coffee Emporium started or commenced franchising. It opened its first uh, coffee house under the umbrella of the Coffee Emporium in, um, under the franchise banner in 2006 and the second store also opened in 2006 so the first store was Blackdown the second store was Liverpool and uh, now we have got uh, 30 coffee houses from 2006 to 2016 and uh, the boys have never looked back so these coffee houses are located where We have two coffee houses in Melbourne, one in Geelong and one in uh, Southland, and the other 28 coffee houses is based in uh, New South Wales, Sydney. Okay, now you came aboard on uh, in 2014. Uh, Tell us a what did you discover and uh, you you put in certain changes tell us about that so I joined the brand uh, the amazing brand in 2014 and uh, what I did when I first came in I completed a SWOT analysis um, and I looked at their strengths the weaknesses opportunities and threats and then I looked I executed a gap analysis to where the brand currently is and where it needs to be and uh, where it needs to be are the biggest opportunities and that's where we focused on key areas to uh, improve the performance and functionality of the brand. Allow me to share a number of examples. It was a coffee and cake style of coffee house. So coffee is our hero and always will be and they were selling lots of cake and sandwiches. That wasn't going to uh, have its longevity. So we actually uh, looked at opportunities to roll out a food menu and we've got an amazing food menu. Manager, 
um, called Carmel, and she focused heavily working um, alongside myself and also with an external consultant to actually drive the opportunity of executing breakfast, lunch, and dinner within our coffee houses. And uh, and that was really successful. We've seen sales grow. We've seen, obviously, the average dollar uh, grow. And we've seen a, a whole different um, dynamics to the business from a product mix perspective. We used to have a very low percentage of food. Now food can hit close to 28% of total revenue. Uh, I, might add that, I might add, though, that you would have a whole different breed of customers coming in because you've changed everything with food haven't you absolutely absolutely so our mentality was to uh to create a a food menu um so people can feel comfortable and we we give the franchise partner every opportunity to work closely with us so we can look at different areas have has as you know different dynamics different um demographics and, and, and we work closely with that local community when we open a coffee house to actually set the franchise partner up for success. And uh, it's it's a very positive approach and it's it's worked wonders for us and it's been successful. And, you know, the old saying, if it's successful, keep doing it. The other angle we looked at is obviously from our design look and feel. So obviously, if we're going to create a new uh, menu line, we obviously need a larger kitchen, which is obviously going to impact the actual... Um, coffee house look feel and experience and we actually work closely with our designer who's um Dorian from Hydra Design, he's an amazing gentleman and he's worked closely with the brand from day one and he's been extremely loyal uh, to us and he's uh, developed the brand and kept um, growing within the brand to take it to where it's at. We've got some amazing coffee houses at the moment. You know, uh, Hornsby is a, is an amazing look and feel. We've got uh, Macquarie, we've got Geelong. We've really stepped up the look and feel and touch points from a guest point of view to ensure that guests feel when they come to the coffee emporium it truly is an extension to their living room i have to ask you i mean you've gone from a big change here and yet you had all these franchise partners on board what were the issues in bringing them along with you it's it's uh, sharing with them areas of opportunity and sharing with them that what they're currently doing you know they are saying if you keep doing what you're doing and but expecting different results it's truly the definition of insanity so it's a matter of listening to their feedback and, and a lot of them had amazing feedback and and a lot of them are correct in a lot of things they shared so it's taking the emotions out and working with the the focuses and actually putting a plan in place to drive uh, what's what's in it for a franchise partner to increase top line sales and naturally optimize profitability so we work closely arm in arm and we we, we were um Good community, good listeners, and we listened to their feedback, and we took a lot of it on board, and we um, executed what needs to be done for the brand to go to the next level. Daniel, one of the things about a franchise, I think, is uh, quality control and, and managing that. You, you're serving food. Is the food produced individually by each franchisee, uh, and how do you maintain quality control? We follow a hazard program. We follow definitely a uh, a focus in in each and every coffee. 
Coffee House to ensure we comply with not just the health regulation but also council requirements. We have in our, our internal audit process that our amazing business development manager focuses on and to ensure that um, everything's executed according to the requirements of the um, council OHS and um, health regulations to ensure consistency and delivering on a good experience. Now, I believe you've got sponsorship, I believe, for the uh, Western Sydney Wanderers. Is that right? Yes, we're amazingly happy with uh, Western Sydney Wanderers. Um, they bring, they add a lot of value to our brand, and we're very happy to work together. We have a mentality of working together, winning together with our sponsors, and uh, we are certainly leveraging on uh, their amazing, on the amazing brand of Western Sydney, and they've come a long way in the four years. Out of the four years in the competition, three out of the four, they've uh, hit the grand final, um, which is um, for a club that's uh, really, you call them still a startup after four years, they've done really well. And uh, we get a lot of Western Sydney Wanderers coming in and showing their um, badge and coming to the coffee and pouring and receiving a token of appreciation and a discount and enjoying a cup of coffee in each and every coffee houses in Australia. And how has that worked uh, for the Coffee Emporium? Uh, what, what benefits have you had from that? Uh, naturally from a brand exposure. So every time there's a game um, at the Wanderers Stadium, we have our name all over the screens and we work closely with the um, the marketing team and we try to leverage every single opportunity we can. So there could be a Q&A session at the ground with myself or some of the owners. We could talk about a lot of social media from a Facebook and Instagram, if we can, um, you know, send a number of photos when they're having a coffee and pouring co- uh, coffee, and we send it to their Facebooks and Instagram, we get a lot of likes. So we we do certainly get a lot of um, leverage out of the Wander Wanderers uh, sponsorship, without a doubt. Now, what are your goals for the future of the Coffee Emporium? Well, obviously, um, we've set a very solid and strong foundation at the Coffee Emporium. Now we are now um, have our systems and tools, procedures and policies. We now have the right team. We have very clear strategic direction. Now we're focusing on growth and we're looking at quality growth, not growth for the sake of growing, but quality growth. It's paramount for the brand to take it to the next level and and maintain that solid foundation moving forward. So quality growth means what? Quality growth means quality fit out, quality franchise partners, um, quality team members, consistently delivering on quality coffee every single time to ensure the guest experience is paramount and ensuring that the guests keep coming back and uh, they look for the crown and come to the coffee emporium and indulge in um, in a great cup of coffee. Daniel Isaac, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Yeah, very interesting, you know, that um, you look around the number of coffee shops in, in the city of Melbourne, absolutely astonishing. And there's Coffee Emporium bringing a new style of work. That's right. That's right. And it's 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 huge. It's a huge business. And the, the margin on coffee is not that bad, is it? No. And the and you know there's lots of it, and people just come in and take it. Absolutely. Okay. Let's move on to Sinclair and find out what he thinks about the government spending cuts. Sinclair Davidson Finance Minister Matthias Cormann says the mid-year budget review coming out in December will show that government spending has slipped from 25.7% of GDP to 25.2% of GDP. He claims that means that spending has stabilised. What's your view? 
generally speaking, um, I would actually want to see the numbers and I want to see the numbers in historical perspective. And most importantly, I actually want to see the absolute level of spending, not the percentage of spending, because one of the tricks our friends in Canberra have gotten up to in the last few years is to play around with the forecast of GDP. So in actual fact, uh, dollar amounts of spending may have gone up, but when they forecast GDP to rise faster, then all of a sudden they say, oh, spending has fallen. Because it is a proportion of yes, the rising the, GDP. Yes, yes. So the, the game becomes is you, you, you play around with the GDP forecast and that makes it look like your spending has actually fallen, where in actual fact uh, probably absolute amounts have gone up. The other game that they play is that they increase the forecasted spending and then they spend less than forecast, then they say, oh, spending has fallen, but relative to forecasts, not relative to actual what has happened in the past. So claims from uh, uh, Canberra that spending is falling need to be checked very, very carefully before being believed. And so the key is actually to go through the numbers in the budget yes and to actually see what the numbers are saying yes 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 and and, and i'm sad to say it, it's become a, a sad reality is that uh, when it comes to politicians talking about the budget you have to check the numbers yourself uh you you, you literally cannot believe what they say now to be fair what he has said is probably strictly technically true but it'll probably be very misleading as to what the actual underlying reality of the situation is. Right, right. And you would have to actually check what that number is in check, the MIFO. So check that number yourself in the MIFO, yes. It'll be there, there. Every single budget document now has got this magnificent uh, appendix at the back. And uh, go and have a look at the appendix at the back. In the budget papers itself, it's always a statement 10 in budget paper 1. And they have got all the numbers going all the way back to 1970. And you have a look at those numbers and graph the figures and you very quickly you get a pretty good snapshot as to what is going on by looking at those numbers. So look at the proportions, of course, because over time the proportions are interesting. But in the short run, you can actually have a look at the absolute value of the numbers themselves, especially the government keeps telling us inflation is very low. So that means that you can compare this year's number to last year's absolute number and not worry too much about inflationary distortions. Right, 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 right. But that, does that mean that uh, the numbers are going up since the 70s? More or less, yes, yes. yes. The, the, the numbers have been going up. There's actually been, from memory, one, maybe two occasions where the actual absolute numbers have gone down from the year before. But generally speaking, the numbers go up. And I would imagine, generally speaking, with a bit of inflation or what have you, you'd expect the numbers to, to, to be going up anyway. The big concern, though, is that our debt keeps rising. Absolutely. It's uh, now at uh, $475 billion, I think the, the, the number is. Um, that's an astonishingly big number, which has very much flown under the radar o over the last few years. Why has it flown under the radar? One of the first things the Abbott government did when they came to office in, in 2013 is that they abolished the debt ceiling. And that had been brought in um, during the global financial crisis by the former Labor government. Uh, it, 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 I actually think it, it was one of their better policies because every time the government wanted to breach the debt ceiling, they had to go back to the parliament and get permission. 
And this brought it to the, the, the fore of the public's mind and everybody was thinking about it and knowing exactly how much debt we had. And the Abbott government abolished it, uh, more or less under the argument that we didn't really need to have a debt ceiling and uh, Peter Costello hadn't had a debt ceiling and he had been a fantastic treasurer. And of course, uh, Peter Costello didn't need a debt ceiling because the, he was actually driving debt down to zero because he didn't believe we should have public debt. And um, it was abolished. And since then, it's just been very quietly ticking up all the time, uh, borrowing more and more money, paying more and more interest, crowding out all sorts of other things. And uh, it, it's been a shocking development. And uh, this was the coalition and the Greens working together. And, and, and to be fair, the Greens were very smart. Uh, the Greens believe in more spending. And they knew full well that unless there was some sort of fiscal discipline mechanism in place, the government would more or less continue to spend. And so they voted to abolish it along with the, the, the Commonwealth government abolishing uh, the, the debt ceiling, which is, to my mind, been a bit of a disaster for sort of sound public finance because people are not thinking about our $475 billion debt. And uh, that keeps going up all the time, doesn't that it? That has gone up all the time, along with spending. And this is why you actually need to keep track, not of spending as a proportion of GDP, but of the absolute value of the spending that is going on, because spending has gone up as well. Spending has not really been cut. The coalition made a big thing about the fact that they cut the rate of increase in spending. And that was sold as a spending cut, or they, they, they've cut spending relative to what was budgeted to be spent, but they haven't actually reduced the amount of spending, which, of course, is if you want to get the, the budget back into balance and you can't really increase taxes very much more, you have to actually cut spending and then you have to start paying down $475 billion of debt. Uh, $475 billion, so... Where does it stand in relation to uh, other budget items? The interest on that is now the sixth largest spending item in our budget. So that's after things such as general spending, which is more or less the, the, the government's, well, what it spends to run the government itself of about $22 billion was uh, budgeted this year. Our net interest, so the actual is probably going to be a bit higher, but the net interest in the budget papers uh, from May this year was a twelve point six billion dollars is what they're expecting to spend on just interest this particular year. 12.6 billion. Billion, yes. Now, to put that into context, defense at the moment is at about 27 billion. Bear in mind, we're spending a lot of money on defense at the moment. Education at the federal level, bear in mind, most education expenditure takes place at the state government level, but the, at the education at the federal level is $33 billion. And welfare and pensions and aged care and all that sort of stuff is 158 billion. So that's the single largest item on our budget is uh, welfare. But uh, the sixth largest, $12 billion, we are just spending on interest payments alone. And that is also growing at the same time as is the face level of the debt itself. So that number is growing very rapidly. And of course, that's $12 billion that we are not spending on education, that we are not spending on health, that we are not spending on tax cuts even, that is actually a, a substantial sum of money. Right, right, right. And, and that keeps increasing? That keeps increasing along with the face value of, of, of the debt that we are borrowing. Now, the argument that we keep hearing is, well, you know, our debt to GDP ratio is still reasonably low. And yes, it is still reasonably low. 
but it is growing at a much faster rate than many other comparable economies is growing. So the argument that that, that we realize some sort of st- stability in spending and stabilization in spending is, is not a good one. Now, uh, last week, uh, Trisha Scott Morrison was in Washington and he was uh, talking to Janet Yellen and he was also talking to S&P. Yes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> basically selling S&P about the uh, measures the government had introduced, such as the omnibus bill of savings and uh he said that they were listening so i mean i think the pitch was to not to cut australia's rating i mean what's your view about that i think that we will lose the triple a rating at the moment we've got triple a rating from from the, the the three big credit rate rating agencies i think we will lose at least one of them um i think we should have lost one already um i i think the the rating agencies are, are, are probably a bit gun shy at the moment to suddenly start downgrading people um, because of the experiences over the last few years. But bearing in mind, they've got a lot of experience in dealing with governments as opposed to dealing with the sort of very sophisticated hybrid instruments that nobody really understood during the GFC. I think they've cut Australia a lot of slack. But I think at some point their patience will run out. Certainly, um, I, I have not been convinced that um, either the current government or their predecessors have had a, a coherent, convincing path back to surplus. Um, their argument is we will grow our way out of trouble, which uh, I'm not convinced that, that that is a good policy because you actually need some fiscal discipline. Which means you need to actually control the spending, cut the spending, and do some serious policy work. Yes, yes, serious policy work on cutting spending, actually saying, you know, should we really be borrowing all this money? Because effectively, the, the, the federal government is, is consumption. We are borrowing money to consume. We are not borrowing money to invest in, in bridges and infrastructure. And, and that is the problem. So in conclusion, uh, I mean, Matthias Kuhlman's comments that spending has stabilized, you, take that with a grain of salt? I, I take it with a massive grain of salt. Um, I would have to see the numbers for myself and actually do a lot of digging before I believe him, which is, of course, unfortunate because you would hope and expect that a government would actually be a lot more transparent and open and truthful about its spending behavior. But unfortunately, since 2007, more or less, we can actually date it, there's been um, a lot of fudging of, of the spending numbers in Australia and, and, and a change in vocabulary and attitude towards actually telling people what's going on. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So how do you read it, Leon? Well, I think he's got a point. I mean, you know, the government says that spending is falling as a proportion of GDP, but the issue is if GDP is rising, it just means the proportion is changing. It doesn't mean the number's changing. No, that's right. And as Sinclair says, got to look at the numbers. And now the news. What do we got, Leon? Well, Gary, for a start, oil prices hit their highest level in a year after Russia said it would support a proposal from the organisation Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, to freeze oil production in order to reverse the two-year slump in oil prices. Now, US oil prices finished at their highest level in 2016. Uh, Benchmark uh, West Texas Intermediate November delivery jumped $1.54 to $51.35 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. 
Now, Russian President Vladimir Putin told an energy conference in Istanbul that Russia supported, in principle, the agreement reached last month in Algiers by OPEC to limit output. Now, the Algiers agreement still has to be nutted out, but should OPEC come to some sort of consensus for its members, non-OPEC producers, such as Russia, would be asked to cap oil production. And markets have traded strongly this week with the news of Russia coming on board. But I have to say there are significant hurdles of achieving a deal next month. The most obvious is how much production does each member state cut? And this could be problematic because Iran has just emerged from sanctions and it's finally agreed to cap its production. So what number do you put on Iran? It's Sinclair's rule again. Let's look at the numbers. That's right. And of course, uh, Iran has long-running issues with Saudi Arabia in places like uh, Yemen and Syria. So uh, it's a bit fragile. That's right. Now, Wall Street stocks are rising and the Mexican peso is climbing on speculation that Donald Trump's performance in the second presidential debate was not strong enough to secure a victory. Uh, The peso jumped 2.3% to a one-month high of $18.86 per dollar. The Canadian dollar is also stronger by 0.5% at $1.32 per US dollar. And the peso and the Canadian dollar are regarded as proxies for the fortunes of both candidates in light of Trump's rhetoric against the North American Free Trade Agreement, both of which both the US, Canada and Mexico apart. Now, both currencies have also sought after the recording from 2005 emerged over the weekend where Trump made controversial remarks about women, prompting prominent Republicans to withdraw this apart. And Mrs. Clinton has been gaining in the polls. Yeah, very much. She's, what, up around 11, 11 points ahead. That's right. I was listening uh, to uh, the former governor of Indiana, I think it was, suggesting that Trump actually represent he's, he's a Hitler figure uh, promoting fascism. Well, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I, my big concern is it's like a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Well, yeah, I mean, the Republican Party is basically at war with Trump. That's right. They could lose control of the Congress. Well, of course, and this was a party of uh, Lincoln, was a party of Eisenhower, Teddy Roosevelt. And it's sad to see what's happening. Now, Samsung has stopped production of its problematic Galaxy Note 7 smartphone. And the decision to kill off the $882 smartphone comes after numerous reports of the phones catching fire. And within days of its launch, I remember images of charred Note 7s beginning to appear on social media. And the firm has asked all global carriers to stop sales of the phone and exchange replacements. And it's offering to exchange Note 7s for other products or refund them. And the recall of Samsung's highest-end smartphone that was supposed to compete against Apple's iPhones and other premium devices during the holiday shopping season is a massive setback for Samsung's reputation outlook and it leaves the world's top maker of smartphones struggling to not only explain what caused the battery fires but also find reasons how a company that had a reputation for product for production expertise could have missed this product floor twice and when phones started catching fire Samsung blamed a battery supplier it kept happening after it switched to an alternative company this could have a long-term impact on the company's reputation sales of future phones analysts are saying the decision to stop note 7 sales could cost Samsung up to $17 billion. As a result of the debacle, Apple shares have soared 2.3%, reached levels not seen since December, and Samsung Electronics shares crashed by 8%. That's the biggest fall since 2008. Investors have wiped nearly $20 billion off its market value, and analysts are now saying the Samsung disaster could see Apple selling an additional 15 million smartphones and increase its market share by 1%. But I think the more worrying part, Gary, is what's the future of Samsung? Well, that's true. I mean, his brand's taken a huge hit. And if Apple gets that market share, that's people moving to a new ecosystem and they're not likely to go back. That's right. And then in terms of the Android uh, platform, Google is out there with the Pixel. 
That's right. And then they're not short of a dollar. And it's good news for Google too. It is indeed. The issue too for Samsung is that, I mean, Samsung's the world's biggest smartphone maker, but it's not only their smartphones, but what about people would start asking about their washing machines, their television sets. And the whole thing. How good is their technology? And it's not just the battery, quite clearly. There's something wrong with the Note 7 design. There was something wrong with the phone itself, yes. Now, Gary, the Turnbull government's legislation intervening in the country fire authority dispute passed the Senate in a late-night session, 37 votes to 31 after it secured the support of the One Nation Party. And at the same time, One Nation support has increased the government's chances of passing two key industrial relations bills, one to re-establish the Australian Building Construction Commission and the other to establish a registered organisations commission imposing higher standards of regulation on union officials and employer associations. Now, Labor and the Greens opposed the CFA bill, so the government needed nine of the 11 Senate crossbench votes. And with Pauline Hanson and her three Senate colleagues coming on board, the government secured the numbers with Nick Xenophon team, that's three, Darren Hinch and Bob Day supporting the bill. Uh, Tasmanian Senator Jackie Lambie voted with Labor and the Greens. Now, this legislation tackles a dispute involving the country fire authority, which is a largely volunteer agency. Its board has been concerned that an enterprise bargaining agreement would hand too much operational control to a union. And the CFA legislation changes the Fair Work Act, making it unlawful for any enterprise agreement to undermine volunteers. And the legislation also strikes out any existing provisions doing that. And of course, the EBA that the Victorian government crafted that started all of this uh, is heading for the High Court. Indeed, indeed. And I think this this uh, this piece of legislation could actually be challenged in the High Court because it's federal government legislation on what's basically a state matter. A state matter, that indeed, that's, that's right. Uh, at the same time, of course, uh, the Andrews government in Victoria has never had such a low, uh, a low standing. That's right. It's really hurt the Andrews government. I mean, they really, really misread this, I think. You reckon it would be Politics 101. There's the CFA in every community and saying it's being attacked by the government. Well, I know I know CFA people who voted Labor all their lives and they say they're never voting Labor again. Yeah, that's true. A huge loss for yeah. uh, Andrews. That's right. Now, Moody's Investor Service says that Australia is going to be the fastest growing AAA rated commodity exporting uh, economy in 2016. Uh, It's going to outdo its peers and it's a reflection of its resilience to shocks with export volumes increasing strongly despite falls in metal prices and the services sectors has benefited from a weaker domestic currency. And Moody's expects Australia to maintain higher GDP expansion than Canada and Norway and a similar rate to New Zealand, which are all AAA over the next few years. And it's likely to maintain higher GDP expansion than Canada and Norway, a similar rate to New Zealand. Now, Moody's saying the weaker Australian dollar and lower interest rates have allowed it to take a bigger market share of rising global demand for tourism and education, and that's as we transition away from mining. And Moody's expects Australia's fiscal deficit to remain wider for longer than the government projects, and it will be higher than New Zealand and Norway. But uh, because of our resilience, we're still going to pile on. And at the same time, as a bit of a bonus, the uh, coke and coal price is what more than doubled hasn't that's it? that's right it's gone right up now right up it's um two hundred dollars that's right it's moving right up that's right and iron ore is still at 50 iron ore, and iron ore is uh well it's fluctuating but yeah. it's uh, it's not falling 
Now, consumer confidence has slipped 0.3% to 117.5, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Confidence Index. And that, I think, might be part of a trend because it adds to the 2.2% decline registered in the previous week. But the critical part is that consumers are remaining positive for their longer-term outlook. But according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute, consumer confidence actually increased by 1.1% in October to 102.4. And that's a big change from September when it edged up 0.3%. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah, excellent. It's better than I thought. Now, uh, patchy economic conditions with a housing cycle starting to fade could see the Reserve Bank of Australia cutting interest rates two more times this next year, according to the latest uh, uh, National Australia Bank Business Survey. The survey indicated that the rate cut had the last rate cut had little impact on business, and the survey saw business conditions only creep up uh, from plus seven to plus eight, with the business confidence index steady at zero six points in September. And that's despite the interest rate cuts in May and August. So uh, National Australia Bank is saying they're going to cut again twice next yeah. year. Well, yeah, even though the example is that the most recent cuts, actually you know, quite a lot of cuts, haven't done a damn thing. Now, uh, billionaire Gina Reinhardt has teamed up with the Chinese-owned Shanghai Cred in a joint $365 million bid to acquire S. Kidman & Co. Pastoral Empire. That's the biggest landowner in Australia. And the deal is politically significant because it comes after Treasury Scott Morrison blocked the sale of Australia's biggest cattle empire to Chinese interests early this year. And Shanghai Cred was in that consortium twice rejected by Morrison in its bid to purchase Kidman. And it's also Gina Reinhardt's biggest move into agriculture. Now, under this deal... Gina Reinhardt's Hancock Prospecting will have 67% of Kidman, Shanghai Cred 33%. It requires approval from Chinese regulators and the Foreign Investment Review Board. It's also subject to the Kidman Group separately selling the Anna Creek and Peak stations. Now, family-owned Kidman runs a massive herd of about 200,000 cattle on the largest private land holding in Australia. It covers about 1.3% of Australia's total land area and 2.5% of its agricultural land. It produces grass-fed beef for export to Japan, the US and Southeast Asia. And the coalition has flagged it's totally behind Gina Reinhardt's flag plan, but a $375 million bid by cattle baron Sterling Bartine and three other wealthy Australian grazier families, which is likely to be lodged this month, could see Kidman broken up and leave Reinhardt on the back foot. They're offering uh, $365 million and the others are offering $375 So it could come down to an auction. Now, construction giant Simic, formerly known as Leighton Holdings, has made a $525 million takeover bid for engineering group UGL. Now, Simic... Simic, which has already required 13.8% of the target company, is offering $3.15 a share, which is a hefty 47% premium to UGL's last closing price of $2.14. And Simic said the Foreign Investment Review Board had given the bid its approval. Also, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission has also pre-assessed the officer offer, and it indicated it doesn't intend to conduct a public review. Now, Simic plans to delist UGL, depending on how much of company it gets, and UGL saying its boards will discuss the offer and has recommended shareholders take no action, but there's a lot of movement in that space. And finally, Gary, in a win for conservationist group, BP has shelved its oil exploration drilling program in the Great Australian Bright. And in its statement, the oil giant said it decided the project won't be able to compete for capital investment with other upstream opportunities in its global portfolio in the foreseeable future. And the Wilderness Society was campaigning against the drilling of oil in the Marine Reserve of Great Australian Bright. But Resources Minister Matt Canavan says he's confident other companies will want to drill the area that BP has abandoned. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Yeah, well, well, the big concerns of the conservationists was about the, uh, well, safety and also about the fragile marine life there. Yeah. 
And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we're talking to um, Nigel Lester from Pitney Bowes. Yeah, very interesting. Pitney Bowes started out uh, selling, uh, you know, make your own stamps, and now it's really into data and all sorts of things. Nine, no, more than 90 years old, that company. That's right. That's right. They've done well. And that's it for us this week. Uh, in time, you can catch up with us on Twitter at Talking Biz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.